this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. It's having the individual engaged to such a degree they don't require motivation and have them feel like they're part of a culture that's making a difference in the world. When they do that, you don't require incentives as much. They're inspired for a cause. So I would say motivation is a symptom, not the solution, but having people engaged and being inspired by the their responsibilities and the vision of the company and the culture that they're building, this is the key. Hello, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. It is Friday, the 20th of January. Um, we are coming to you live from Sydney, Australia, the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Managed Flutter, the co-founder of Managed Flutter. With me is my co-host, Kate Frappel, who's the design lead of Managed Flutter. Um, good afternoon, Kate. How's it going? Thanks for joining us on the podcast. No problem. As usual, we got a fantastic show lined up today. Um, coming up later on the show, we've actually got an interview with Dr. John Demartini. Dr. Demartini is a very, very well-known speaker, author, educator, researcher. Um, Dr. Demartini is considered one of the world's leading authorities on human behavior and personal development. And I had a chat to him earlier on in the week. So that's coming up later on in the show. He was uh, kind enough to Skype in from... Um, Houston, I believe, in Texas. As usual, you can email us at podcastedittermonkey.com. You can tweet us. We love to hear from you. Let's uh, get right into it, Kate. Uh, news this week, tech news. We always like to cover a little bit of the tech news in a great fast-moving industry. There's always so much happening that uh, we like to give you, the listener, a little bit of a taste of what uh, is happening on the landscape. And we've got some interesting stories this week about Google and uh, Google doing some interesting uh, bits and pieces on downloading, with respect to downloading high-res images. Yeah, so they've um, started to use machine learning to reduce the data needed for high-resolution images. Uh, they're using a so RAISR technology, which I think... It's just it a could name. Be just razor. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> just a name they made up. Yeah, um, so that stands for rapid and accurate image super resolution. So Google takes an image, reduces it to a quarter of the size, and then presents it to who's requesting it. Uh, razor basically fills in the details and makes it look higher resolution again. So if you're looking at something, I think they've just rolled this out on Google Plus, um, which is their social media network, which um, I think is still. Um, used in some niches, but generally people don't seem to use Google+. Plus. Um, so if you're looking at something on Google+, Plus, it's a high-res image, your phone and, and you want to look at that image or someone posts an image, your phone will download a very, very light version of that image. Um, so it won't use up your bandwidth, which in some countries um, is actually a big deal. It's really expensive bandwidth. Yeah. Um, so it only download a very light version of it. And then using this new machine learn, uh, learning sort of uh, algorithms and techniques, it will actually um, fill in all the gaps. Now, from what I understand, where this technique is quite different to other techniques um, is that it's actually quite intelligent in that it, it uses different algorithms and adjusts its algorithms according to the image. So yeah. it's, it doesn't apply just one standard, right, 
cut out 50%, we'll f- fill in 50% this way. Um, so it's, um, you know, makes, um, it's, it makes it a lot more effective in that um, it's, it's, you actually get a really, really high quality, accurate, non-blurry image, even though you've literally only downloaded a quarter of the pixels. Yes, and I believe it um, it can detect the edges of a particular object inside the image and that's where it will add pixels uh, and same with certain colours and the density of certain areas in an image as well. So that's where the smarts come in. Because um, images can, you know, people these days, people don't think about the images they upload and, you know, pe- people don't want, to th- don't want to think about image sizes. They also don't want to think about their bandwidth and they don't want to worry, um, you know, about using up their bandwidth and thinking, oh, if I'm going to use Google Plus or Facebook, uh, you know, is it going to chew up all my bandwidth? So companies are really mm-hmm. trying to be smart about it, both on the upload side of things. They try to, I know this frustrates you sometimes, they try to compress images. Oh. Uh, Always. <laughs> after you upload it so that then the people using the social media network have they, the compressed version, version of it yeah. and it's everything's made a lot lighter because you can't, if someone uploads a profile photo of themselves that's, um, you know, two megs, you don't want someone then each time they look at your Twitter profile, there's a two meg photo that just scrolls down. So they do have to actually compress and, and limit it in some manner. Yeah, I, I can definitely understand why they do it. Um, but it is terribly frustrating. I recently had an experience on Facebook uploading certain images and particularly on personal accounts, it seems to be more of an issue, the compression. Uh, Business accounts, not so much. Um, But Google isn't the only one doing it. Uh, Twitter has implemented a, or they've bought a technology of the same type called Magic Pony from the UK and it does the same thing but for videos. Right, so people can upload videos and then when, when people watch the video, it's only downloading part of the video, but it works out which parts are missing and it fills yeah. in the gap. Yeah, exactly the same. But yeah, really, really smart, interesting technology. And, uh, you know, in Australia, uh, bandwidth is not such an issue and no. it's relatively cheap, so we don't have to think about it that much. But I know uh, South Africa where I've spent some time, airtime and bandwidth is, is a big issue. And I think... Um, you know, I, th- I think Facebook spent a lot of effort making very light versions of their app mm. um, for for countries where bandwidth is is very. Um, um, Facebook you know, are very conscious of sort of bringing internet to the whole world, so I wouldn't mind betting that they put efforts into that type of thing. They even want to bring um, connectivity. You know, using yes. uh, helium balloons or or drones, or there was some um, some initiative from Facebook to actually you know, bring connectivity in areas where it doesn't exist. So mm. I remember they were testing out some type of aircraft. I remember when it first launched, everyone was really happy about it and it's like uh, probably solar panelled and it goes to sort of third world countries and helps with the connectivity there. Yeah, so um, they're very aware of it. So I think we're going to see a lot more of it. They'll, they'll get it right, so your frustrations. I mean, I think the frustration that you have is you – you upload an image and it compresses it in a way that it changes the visible quality of the image. Yes. Right. So you you spend a lot of work on um, getting this image perfectly right and the colors right. Yep. And you upload it and it pixelates or it's you know got funny watermarks and things like that. And yeah. you just and there's just no way around it. Even though the size is not necessarily that big. 
No, I mean, even if you read certain guidelines from the particular websites that recommend the upload size or dimensions, you can follow it to a T and they'll still compress it. Yeah, I think they change things a lot and frequently. So um, the good thing with Facebook is usually, usually they, um, and Google, usually they sort things out, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll get there. Anyway, that's um, Google's new new compression um, sort of technology, Razor. We'll put a link to the article if you want to find out uh, more about it. You can always check the show notes at itsamonkey.com. We put links to the article um, and links to the guest, etc. Um, next story, really cool. Um, <laughs> everyone likes space and space exploration. Um, so, and then there's a company that um, wants to be the first company that mines on the moon. Now, that's in itself probably a little <laughs> bit controversial, yeah. but um, Moon Express has received full funding for its first trip to the lunar surface later this year. So that's pretty quickly. Um, it's raised another 20 million of funding and has now raised over 45 million um, so far. And um, one of the companies that has invested in it is uh, Peter Thiel's founder fund. Peter Thiel, of course, the one of the founders of PayPal, um, and he's in was the first investor in Facebook, and now he's in the news because he was uh, one of the few outspoken supporters of of, Do- of Donald Trump from Silicon Valley. Anyway, that's one of his uh, investments is Moon Express, and. Um, The CEO says, our goal is to expand Earth's social and economic sphere to the moon, our largely unexplored eighth continent. So I like the way they're making the universe, (laughs) the the solar system, a smaller place by calling it the eighth continent. Definitely. Uh, Moon Express is also a a main contender for Google's Lunar X Prize. Which, of course, is a competition to get the first private spacecraft to the moon where all the funding needs to come privately, right? So i.e. no government involvement at all. Yep. So a ninety percent, right? Ninety percent. So they can get ten percent from the governments if yes. if they so wish. Yeah. But they must be privately funded team. Uh, they need to successfully place a spacecraft on the moon's surface, travel five hundred meters, and then transmit high definition video and images back to Earth. Such a um, such a cool competition to be part of. I actually contributed to the Israeli team. I think it's called Space IL. IL is the the domain for Israel, and mm. um, I think I think I, I got a T-shirt for my contribution, <laughs> and I get emails every now and then. And I think they also on the they also got a team on track to uh, be you know yeah. first on the moon. There, they're they're part of this actually. There's about four of them by the looks of things. So yeah, Space IL, Moon Express, uh, Synergy Moon, and Team Indus. And interestingly, the company um, was the first company, the first private company to receive regulatory ap- approval from the U.S. government to go to the moon. Yeah. I wonder what that letter looked like. <laughs> Be pretty <You> impressive. <laughs> Dear Moon Express, <laughs> we hear about grant permission to go to the moon. I know, but I mean, it, it's controversial, but can the U.S. even give that kind of permission? Like, is the moon I, the U.S.'s to own? Yeah, I don't know about all the laws <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm not sure... Um, yeah, um, it's a good question. I've actually reached out to the CEO of Moon Express to see if we can get him on the show because it'll be really interesting to talk a little bit more about you know, the technology and behind it. Obviously, it's a lot easier getting machines to the moon than getting humans to the moon. The complicating part with getting humans to the moon is you've got to bring them back, right? Yeah, it takes, takes a lot of years apparently too, like to get there and back. Um, not years, not the you thinking Mars. 
You're maybe thinking I'm Mars. thinking Mars. You're yeah. Thinking Mars, yeah. I think, is about four years one way. Yeah. Yeah, Mars is far, but the moon, no, the moon is, I think it's a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I'm not, not that, not that. That, you call it that's okay. up to you, speed you, <laughs> with space. You, you kind of, um, kind of everything. So, um, but yeah, look, mining on the moon, I would imagine, you know, is is quite controversial. Uh, mining can be, and in a way, is a destructive process. Um, yeah. You know, and and are we going to, you know, go and destroy the moon? But then again, um, if it's, for instance, would solve our energy problems on Earth, then we would discover some abundant energy source there. You know, these okay. things are never, never um, black and white. Uh, here it says it's uh, it's a four-day trip to the moon. Okay. Once it lands, it will explore by hopping across the surface as well as take pictures and videos to send back to Earth. The land will also carry scientific instruments, including payloads from NASA, the International Lunar Observatory, and the University of uh, Maryland. Aren't they also um, talking about, in terms of mining, using the water on the moon to get back, using it? somehow as rocket fuel yes so i think they also you know it would be a a uh, fueling up station as well you you know so maybe for further exploration maybe on the way to mars you stop off at the moon and that'd be a cool idea and you sort of um you know change trains um yeah, the space explore, exploration is really, really interesting i saw spacex elon musk's uh company landed another another rocket yesterday Oh. Um, based, um, so, well, they've they've got this initiative to launch the rockets and then bring them back and land them after they've come back to Earth to reuse these rockets because because apparently by far the most expensive part of um, space exploration is the rockets and the fact they get destroyed. So if you can True. reuse them, um, you you suddenly start bringing the cost down. That's you know his whole. Yeah. His all aim, which is a complicated thing to do, but they've achieved a, a huge amount of progress. And the space shuttle, in part, was a little bit like that, not you know, to reuse the actual vehicle, although the boosters were weren't reused. Um, so we've still got a long way to go, but there is progress being made. Okay, so we're going to take a short break. Remember, you can tweet us um, at Monkey Podcast. You can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. We love to hear from you we get these podcasts out every week we have some fantastic guests coming up uh, in the next few weeks including the creator of ruby on rails and one of the partners uh, at Basecamp, um, one of the uh, the very popular project management software um, is uh, going to be joining us on the podcast so we're going to be taking a short break and then we'll come back with uh, my chat with dr john demartini Hi, my name is Dave Zarati, and I'm the Customer Support Specialist here at Manage Flitter. Manage Flitter is a tool that helps you work faster and smarter on Twitter. With Manage Flitter, you can clean up and grow your Twitter account. You will also get access to useful Twitter analytics, social content scheduling, and much more. Go to manageflitter.com and start your free trial today. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Manage Flitter, and you are listening to the It's a Monkey podcast. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you would know that on this podcast, we chat about all things related to startups, tech, entrepreneurship, but we also chat about the human element of our industry, the human behavioral element of success. And I'm excited to say that uh, joining us 
today on the podcast is Dr. John Demartini, who is a world authority on human behavior and performance, researcher, best-selling author, international educator, and public speaker, and former chiropractor. Dr. Demartini is also the founder of the, the Demartini Institute. He's the author of many books, including uh, nine of his most recent ones, such as The Breakthrough Experience, Inspired Destiny, Riches Within, Stress to Success, translated into 28 languages. Dr. Demartini, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Dr. Demartini, you've said uh, being a master of persistence means embracing both support and challenge in pursuit of your dreams. Now, from an early age, uh, you actually had a birth defect. You wore uh, hand and leg braces. You had, at school, you had a lot of difficulty with um, reading, writing, and diagnosed with dyslexia. You actually left school at 14, um, and you almost died at 17 um, uh, from poisoning. And, th and, then you, and then you met someone that inspired you to uh, discover and fulfill your purpose. And uh, here you are today, many, many years of being a, a, a leading uh, thought leader in the area of uh, human behavior. Um, in our industry, we hear a lot about the quote-unquote overnight success stories. And what's very useful to us is actually to hear about the the, the nitty-gritty, the dirty details, the hard stuff. I was lucky enough earlier this week in Sydney to hear about um, your, your success evolution in your chiropractic practice. And I think it would be really interesting for our podcast listeners, for us, before we get into the exciting success, um, um, sort of elements of success, to hear about your story right back from, from where it wasn't such a quote-unquote success story. So you'd like me to start back at the childhood? <laughs> <laughs> we can uh, we can start with your chiropractic practice when you when you borrowed some money and you were anxious about how all of this is going to land up. Well, um, I graduated from professional school uh, in 1982, and I went out and started my practice. And I had considered mentoring and precepting. Um, and interning with other doctors, but I frankly didn't find doctors that really matched what I wanted to do. So I decided to go out on my own. When I went out, I, it was right at the time when it was just about to have a downturn in a, the United States with the oil crisis, but I got in right beforehand and I was able to get a loan to open up the practice. So I bought, I got a little $70,000 loan to get me enough equipment to open up the practice. Uh, nine months later, I expanded it. I added another a uh, thousand to, well, a little over a thousand, fifteen hundred feet more and had a doctor and some staff working for me. And then nine months later, I had grown and I had five doctors and about a dozen staff members. Um, and I had gotten another $70,000 loan. And uh, by then I got a house and cars and all the stuff that you normally call success, which were the trappings of, of growth. And, um, as my income was going up, so were my debts. My taxes were going up, everything was going up. And I had the normal challenges that I think an entrepreneur begins with, uh, keeping adapting to the new changing environment, having the downturns in the oil market, you know, just wipe out uh, whole subdivisions in Houston, three, 400 people closed down all at once. Uh, thousands of people were laid off and then there was road construction going on. I had a lot of challenges in the beginning, but I, I had, the ability to adapt and be resilient the best I could. And I went out of my way. I literally went door to door, introducing myself to thousands of people in the community to find out what their needs were and kept matching their needs. 
And I was able to flourish during some of the tougher times, primarily because I had to be creative and be adaptive. And I started doing radio and television and newspapers and magazine articles and media and whatever I could to keep exposing myself and keep meeting needs. So it was a, a bit of a challenge the first few years. But you discovered during that process um, what part of it really inspired you and, and, and what's your purpose and, and which parts were really a drag. And that was almost the point at which it, you, you found the magic formula to do uh, more of what you love and delegate out the parts you didn't love and in a way that seemed to bring a whole new energy and momentum to your business and push it through to, to, to whole new levels, right? What happened was uh, as I was growing – I was learning how to, I had to learn how to delegate because I was in the way. I kept wanting to do it all myself, thinking I knew best. And my uh, exaggerated self-image was blocking me. Luckily, I picked up a book at Walden's Bookstore called The Time Trap by Alec McKinsey. And after reading that book, I realized that uh, all the pitfalls of delegation I was falling into. And so I made a list of everything I was doing I put next to it, how much did it produce per hour uh, to get an idea of what was really the most important things to be doing. Then I went by and I looked at how much meaning did it provide me because some things I would sacrifice a little profit for some meaningful things. And then I looked at how much it would cost to replace somebody to do it, to do those activities, uh, to look for spreads. And then I looked at how much time I was spending each day. And after doing a chart of those five columns, um, I had a better idea of where my biggest spreads were, where my biggest returns were. And then I realized something that was a little bit shocking, that the thing that I went for 10 years of college to, uh, the actual doctoring and clinical work, was actually not the most productive thing I could be doing. It was the second most productive thing, and um, which initiated me to focus more, even though I had already been speaking as, as a professional speaker and already, you know, making part of living by it, I concentrated more on speaking because I was generating patient, new patients by speaking. So I found out that my, my role was to speak and then get doctors to do some of the clinical work and get teams of administration to do the administrative work. And once I put that formula together, I uh, really took off. I was able to generate enough income from just a morning. Um, it was quite astonishing. And so my business grew. And I had people doing it, and it freed me up to do the highest priority things, which today is researching, writing, traveling, and teaching. And it morphed my program or my my career from a clinical thing to mainly uh, running businesses and managing people and leading people, and then to speaking at conferences on how I did that, and then into different industries. Now I get to travel over the world. So I started in the health profession, but I'm now uh, serving people all over the world, different industries. Isn't it a trap that I see, you know, with myself and some of my peers as well, that um, the illusion um, of being busy, um, um, you know, it's a bit of a trap that sometimes if you feel like you're being uh, busy, that, that you, you, you're working on your business and that which is important. But unless you actually bring awareness to what you're actually working on, it's not necessarily the case. Well, I definitely had majored in minors and minors and majors um, without realizing it until I did that exercise. So that exercise is a goldmine if it's done. And then I realized that the key is now to maximize my performance in the highest priorities. So once I identified my priorities, in my case, it was speaking. Because if I went out and did a breakfast talk to 60 people, um, I would generate five to eight new patients. Well, each patient 
case average was about $3,000. So I could have a $15,000 hour by doing, um, you know, presentations. So once I did that, I hired somebody to just schedule those. And I was doing those pretty well, at least three to five times a week. And that uh, generated a whole lot more income and grew my practice. And then with that and normal referrals, you know, I did really well. And then people want to know how I did it. So I speak on classes of how I was clinically managing people and timing everything and procedures were being tightened. I was very, uh, I was like Henry Ford with detail for a while, just trying to get everything down to the most efficient thing I could to get the best service and the sh shortest time for people so people didn't have to wait. I prided myself on not ever having my patients in my office any more than minutes beyond uh, just bare minimum minutes so they didn't have to stall their life. I didn't like patients having to wait in my office. I wanted them to get service the second they walked in right on schedule. And that's what I, and that's what I love about uh, hearing your stories. Even though your business was not a tech story, it's it's almost a classic tech model of iterating, measuring, adjusting, taking the feedback, optimizing, um, and that iterative process, if done right in any business, um, and opening the lines of dialogue with your customers. Um, there's a real magic. To, to really staying tuned into that process. And um, that, that's, that's how so many good businesses bro grow through that iterative process. And, and although it sounds logical, there's many small and big businesses that get that wrong and stagnate and um, you, you know, miss the boat. I mean, this famous story, Kodak invented the digital camera. Kodak doesn't exist anymore. Somehow they just didn't stay in tune with dialogue with their customers and their market and, and, and they totally missed it. And even though they invented the technology, they, they, they went bankrupt and don't benefit from it now at all. Well, it goes to show how important it is, the executive center with foresight, how it can override the more primitive parts of the brain with hindsight. So if you learn through trial and error, you won't keep up with the people who are out there foresighting and thinking in advance and grabbing market share. So you also um, say mo something that I, I, I love as someone who manages a team and um, you know, needs to get the best out of a team. Motivation is not a solution. It is a symptom. Now, it was almost confronting when I heard you say that, you know, as someone who's, who's, who's always trying to, you know, to be honest, to motivate my team. But, um, you, you know, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of sense in what you're saying there. It's a hard reality that um, if people are on the right seat on the bus aligned with your organization and their jobs aligned with their, um, their own purpose, motivation is almost a seamless, natural part of the process and comes from them, not from you, right? Well, there's an, I, I like to think it's inspired from within. I was just with Keith Cunningham uh, at a conference. I spoke in Dublin last night and um, we had thousands of people there and it was, we were discussing that. And it's not just getting the people on the bus, as Jim Collins said, it's also building the culture where people feel that they're engaged and inspired to work with that, that culture and the dream of the game. And uh, so it's, it's having the individual engaged to such a degree they don't require motivation and have them feel like they're part of a culture that's making a difference in the world. Uh, when they do that, you don't require incentives as much. They're inspired for a cause. And so that's, uh, that's important. So I would say motivation is a symptom, not the solution, but having people engaged and being inspired by the, their responsibilities and the vision of the company and the culture that they're building this is the key. Do you think, Dr. Demartini, I mean, I, you know, the messages in society these days from the media, from social norms are incredibly strong. You know, a lot of your work talks about, you know, understanding your own higher purpose and understanding your values. 
is it possible for people to just really have no idea of what their higher purpose and their values are? I mean, even some of my you know, previous team members, etc., I've tried to understand what their driving forces are in the tech industry. It's famous that you know, a motivating force for tech people is not money. They're not driven. They're driven by uh, technological challenges, size of um, you know, people using their products, etc. You know, how, do, how, do how do you work with people that don't necessarily understand what their higher purpose is? Well, every human being lives by a set of priorities. Whether they're conscious or unconscious, they're living by a set of priorities. Hopefully they're conscious of what they are, but most aren't. Whatever's highest on their values, highest in their priorities, uh, the ancient Greeks called the telos, the end in mind. Napoleon Hill called it the chief aim. One of my earliest mentors called it the primary objective. And um, this highest value is the purpose. The telos is the purpose. So you don't have to search for your purpose. It's always there but wake up to look at what your life demonstrates is truly spontaneously inspiring from within to do. Whatever you do every day that nobody has to remind you to do, that you're inspired to do, that you love doing, whatever that is, that's the purpose. What most people expect it to be or what they think it would be, but what their life demonstrates most important. And then making sure that the people can see a link between the job responsibilities and that initiates engagement. That's what engagement is. No one goes to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill what's highest on their value, the very highest value, which is the telos, is the purpose, is the thing that they're dedicated to most. They spontaneously are inspired from within to fulfill that. Once they can see how their job duties help them do that, they're inspired, they're engaged, and they produce. You, you uh, mentioned one of the questions you should ask in a job interview is, uh, how is this job description helping you fulfill what is most, or how would this job description help you fulfill what is most meaningful in your life? If people don't have a good answer for that, I mean, does it mean that they just... They're not engaged. If there's alignment, they'd be able to answer that. And if there's not, um, it's just a bad fit. If they can't answer that in less than a second to three seconds, I mean, literally one second, if they're not fluent in the answer, they're not going to be congruent. I've been doing this. I've dealt with thousands of people in interviews and things like that uh, and engagement and people in companies. I'm absolutely certain that's a science. If, they, if you can ask them how specifically is doing this job duty going to help you fulfill what is truly most important to you once you define what that is, if they can't answer it and just blare out immediately the response – they're not going to be engaged in that duty. And then you're going to, and then you're going to have to use all uh, sophisticated motivation techniques. That's a symptom. You're going to get motivation and you're going to use all these gimmicks to get people motivated. And it costs overheads and it costs money and it adds HR and, it, and it's, uh, it, you're adding bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is a byproduct of incongruencies and non-engagement in companies. Interesting. Um, Dr. Demartini, you also uh, mentioned that the number one question that you have in, in your seminars and your workshops, people ask you, is how to stay focused. Um, it's something I hear a lot from my peers and, and, and from team members as well. Is that, is that part and symptom of our distracting society? Is it part people, again, are, 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 are not totally in tune with their um, higher purpose? What's driving the need to – is there an innate understanding that focus will actually drive productivity and they, and they understand and they want more of that? You're, every human being is – spontaneously focused and inspired and dedicated to what their highest value is. Guarantee it. So when somebody says, I, how do I stay focused? That means they're attempting 
to live by something other than their highest values. And so if they can't stay focused on the things they think are important to do, what they think are important to do aren't what's important to them. And until they can see how what that high priority action is and how it's going to help them fulfill their highest priority, they're, they're, it's an illusion. You know, I have people tell me that they want to be financially independent, right? They, I, I just asked thousands of people in Dublin last night, how many of you want to be financially independent? Thousands of them. And uh, they all put their hands up. And then I asked them how many are right now financially independent. Now, this was a high-end group, so there was a higher percentage than the, than the global average. But it was no more than 1.5%. So that was it. Mm. So you have a small few people that actually do it. The average around the world is less than 1%. But these were executives, so there were a lot more of them there. But the thing is, they all have a fantasy about being financially independent, but they don't have the values that will ever lead them there. They have a higher value on buying consumables and depreciables and buying things that leave a liability than they do in knowing and discerning and buying assets that put money in their pocket and build their wealth. And so as long as their values are not leading towards buying assets and they'd rather spend their money on things other than that, then they're basically going to go backwards in financial independence. They're not going to obtain it. And that's why 99% of the population doesn't. So most people fantasize and think they, oh, I want to be financially independent. No, they don't. They want to spend their money and have the lifestyles of the rich and famous without the income. And they want to spend more than they make. That's the fact. And so many people, what they think is important to them is not what's important. It's what their life demonstrates that they spontaneously do. That's what's important to them. And getting that distinction and knowing that difference, uh, I put together an entire questionnaire in my website to help people discern that, to help people make that decision because otherwise they're going to be living in the illusion. They're going to think, oh, I can't stay focused. Why can't I stay focused? Why I keep sabotaging? Why am I not uh, driven? And they're going to be distracted. And when you're inspired by your highest value, you're easily distracted by other people telling you what to do. And then you further into a vicious cycle. And many thousands of years ago, Plato said, uh, know thyself and be thyself. Well, that's the Delphic Oracle that uh, carried that on, and, and uh, that, that was the great truth. And most people don't know what their values are because they're not taking the time to do it. They've injected the values of outside authorities, mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, or peer pressures from society, and they've clouded the clarity of what's really important to them. And letting themselves be free to be true to themselves uh, is, is very powerful. And seeing how what they're doing in their job is helping them fulfill that is the key to engagement. Um, Dr. Demartini, in our industry, in the tech startup world, it's infamously difficult. Um, a lot of companies, you know, struggle to to get um, you know, product market fits and and have co-founder fall fallouts. Sometimes it's 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 pretty difficult to stay, um, you know, energized and motivated. Um, one of the things that I I, I uh, read that um, was was even pretty useful to me as an owner and entrepreneur is um, um, when you when you're going through you know a, a perceivably tough time to. Ask yourself the question, how is this experience helping me fulfill my purpose and how can you extract benefits on what's happening? And you also comment about the, this dualistic nature, I guess, of, of life and the universe that, um, you know, the, the, the good and the bad is, is, is just as equally important parts of this entire journey that you're going through. And I think that's incredibly valuable for startup founders to really remember because sometimes we feel that if we're having more of the bad and less of the good, we're perhaps sometimes um, not as capable as we should be or we're failing or et cetera. Well, I, my, my experience is there is no such thing as good and bad. That's the delusion that we keep living in. 
what we do is we have this arbitrary assumption that something is good and then we wait weeks or months or years, we found out the challenges and downsides of it. And we think something is bad and we find out the upsides to it. And why wait and have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process? Why not just find out that there's two sides to things? Like every, every event, in quantum theory, everything is an event. It's not a positive or negative or good or bad. And there's no positive pole without a negative pole in a magnet. In a magnet, um, when we embrace both sides of the magnet, we get magnetism. We need both sides. And I would say that the, the child that's overprotected and oversupported and got all this positive and happy supportive thing usually stays juvenile dependent and it holds them back. And the challenging stuff and the tough stuff and the responsible stuff is what makes them entrepreneurs. So people think, well, that terrible stuff is bad, but it's not. It's actually what makes you great. It's the challenges in the world that build entrepreneurial experiences. I mean, when we're, when we're out there looking to solve problems, if we didn't have problems in the world, we wouldn't have businesses. The businesses are built out of people's problems. So our job is to find them and not run from them, but to embrace them and use them to great advantage, to serve people with them. As one of the philosophers says, I uh, forget which one, said, that which hurts instructs. I think there's wisdom in that. I always say that the greater the challenge, the greater the opportunity. And and uh, so I don't see things as good and bad. I just see them as events. Now the question is, is both sides of that magnet serve? How specifically do they serve? That's what you want to get. You come from that attitude and there's no setbacks or failures. They're just feedbacks. Dr. Demartini, you spend a lot of time in Australia. Interesting are your insights. Um, you know, we spend in the tech industry here, there's always a lot of talk about, um, you know, how cultural differences between Australia and, and America. What, what do you notice? Um, any insights or observations how Australia is different in the business level, the human level um, to the U.S.? You know, I don't know if there's as many differences as there are similarities. I think that that people are people. They want to get ahead, they want to raise a family, they want to be loved, they want to be appreciated, they want to come up and innovate. And today with a global environment, um, that difference in culture, I'm not finding really that big and significant anymore. I mean, people in every country I've been to, I mean, I, I travel in 60 or so countries a year, that everybody's trying to do the same thing, trying to achieve, trying to serve, trying to build businesses, trying to earn income, trying to raise families. I find more similarities and differences in the cultures because I mean I can't make a statement that Australia is one way. I find that you got a complete spectrum in every country I go to of people. How do you practically, with all that travel, how do you practically deal with time zone switches and keeping your energy levels? Just, just curious to. It just seems like you know an incredible um, you know um, investment of energy to to do that amount of travel. You know, I don't even think about it. I'm just, I get on a plane. I, I just flew from Dublin. Well, from Dublin to London, London to Houston. And that's an hour and a half to, to London from Dublin. And then about another 10 and a half hours to Houston. I got my computer. I went to work. I landed. And I, I found out I had this uh, interview. I didn't know I had this interview because it wasn't uh, on my itinerary the other day. I left uh, Sydney, Australia, what, I think on Tuesday. I spoke with you guys Monday. I was in Singapore Tuesday night. And then I went up to London and Dublin. I had to speak at a conference there and did a webinar. And then uh, I'm here. And I, I'm here till Monday, uh, Tuesday. I mean, I go to L.A. So I'm, I'm on the go constantly. So I don't know if I ever have a time zone that becomes normal. Uh -huh. it's, it's, I just don't even think about it. I just get to work. It's, it's incredible.
I know sometimes people, uh, you know, my friends in the US, they travel from um, LA to New York a few hours, just just struggle even with their jet lag. So um, your, your your physical uh, adaptation and resilience is, is quite amazing. Um, Dr. John Demotimi, Performance and Behavior Specialist, really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. We're going to put up links on the show notes to your, to your website and all your bits and pieces. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for what you're doing. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, I stumbled upon Dr. Demartini many, many years ago, I think one of his books, and uh, been to many um, talks of his. Um, I love how clear and articulate he is. He always gets me excited. His, uh, his life story just fascinates me. It is such a, such a turnaround life story. I like his, you know, I got him to speak about his business story and how he created the business because it's, it's something that I actually haven't read or heard about in any of his talks. Mm. And... Um, you know, he really built a really big, successful medical practice from nothing just by iterating and adjusting and uh, finding out what he's good at. And he got really good at learning how to grow and run medical practices. And people came to him for, for help. And then people like to, to hear about him talking about other things. And it just, yeah. it just grew. And now he travels around the world. I mean, his schedule, I mean, he must have a very strong constitution to, I mean... <laughs> He's constantly traveling and he said he doesn't experience any jet lag. He just wake, you know, he gets wherever he is and adjusts into yeah, it. He just doesn't even think about it. Doesn't even think about <laughs> it. And, um, you know, he gives over a thousand talks, interviews a year and, and 300 talks. And, um, it, you know, definitely a remarkable person. Yeah. I mean, I think he made a point. Uh, he said earlier on when he first opened the practice that he had to get creative in terms of advertising and, and surviving difficult times and uh, door knocking and all sorts of things. So I think that's really carried through by the sounds of it to where he is now. He's just had to continuously be creative about the ways that people find out about him and hear about him, listen to him. And look, now he travels to different countries nearly every day. And I think, um, you know, he talks a lot about his high, you know, the higher purpose and your value system. And it's, it's, it's almost, you know, it is a very, um, you know, elegant and simple way of looking at things. But, you know, if you look at your own diary or your social calendar, or even your work calendar, you can't hide away from what are your priorities. That's true. You know, you really can't hide. I mean, I mean, we make time what's important to us we do to a degree i mean he also said too the things that you do spontaneously are also subconsciously your higher values because you don't even have to think about them you just do them exactly and um you know i think i think all of these these frameworks and uh, metaphors and methodologies are all very useful to um you know self-reflect so that we can sometimes just 
you know, see where we at with, with the work that we're doing, with what we're filling our days with, you know, as entrepreneurs and business owners, it's a classic trap. I think I mentioned this in the interview of, of, of busyness as opposed to productivity. Yeah. You know, I think for us all, it's, it's busyness can, can mask non-productivity. Oh, like you said, you know, you've got to learn to delegate eventually. Which is, which is uh, very hard for entrepreneurs that tend to sort of like to be in control um, of their journeys. One thing I really liked about him as well is, is it, what he said is the, the whole balance in having to deal with the good and bad of the journey. You know, there's the happiness movement, which, which m- might have become misunderstood where people are, um, you know, people might even be feeling bad when they're not feeling happy. Do you know what I mean? They, they, um, you're looking at me a little bit confused. <laughs> Feeling bad when they're What happy. I mean by that is, you know, there's <laughs> okay. a lot of, there, there's some schools of thoughts that saying happiness is a choice. You know, if, yeah. you, if you're not happy, it's just because your attitude isn't right and things like that. But I really liked, you know, um, Dr. Demartini explaining that the, the dualistic nature of life and the universe is that the bad is just as part as a part of the good and you have to go through yeah. the bad for the good and you know it's it's you're living in a delusion if you think everything should or must be happy and good the whole time sure and like i think you appreciate the good more when you've experienced the bad it gives you some um, context and relativity yeah, right? and perspective you yeah. know if you're doing well now you can be like you recognize that you're doing well or that you're happy and you know, versus a time when you weren't. But if you've always been happy, then you've got nothing to, to judge that on. I think that sometimes, you know, like like child stars that have success too early. I mean, I'm not a expert in the area, but it's it's so it's so ex- so extremely obvious how how disproportionately you know their lives derail, and it's always incredibly mm. tragic. And sometimes I wonder, is it because there's something magical about not being able to have everything that you want, particularly at an early age? And if you have yeah. such success at an early age, and you have fame and fortune and 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 anything your heart desires, it's almost like the human psyche just just implodes on that. You know, there's. Mm. There's, there's person after person, you know, um, there's um, that actor Amanda Bynes who I think she was uh, on a Disney, a Disney show in the States and she yeah, was one she of the... Yeah, she was the star in that uh, She's the Man movie. Right, and she was yeah. one of the youngest people to have her own talk show host at 16 or 17 and oh, you, wow. you watch YouTube videos of that and she was so smart. Wow, mm. just sharp and smart. And unfortunately, you know, over the last couple of years, she's, she's had a lot of personal challenges. And yeah. um, look, life's, life's uh, you know, there's a lot of interrelated forces. And um, it's really, I think, is probably comforting to a lot of people that feel pressured that they need to be happy and satisfied and fulfilled the whole time. Well, guess what? You don't. No. You know, you don't. And, and if you're not, you, you're probably on the right journey because none of us are. It's, it's, as he says, it's delusional. It's unrealistic, you yeah. know. Oh, another point he brought up too was about motivation, you know, that it's a symptom, not a solution. So, I mean, Lack the good and the bad. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the good and the bad, you know, if you're in a bad state, it can almost motivate you to get out of it. Absolutely. And, you know, as and when you're leading teams as well, um, you know, it's a hard reality, as I mentioned in the interview, if someone's not motivated, beating the stick, you know, yeah. uh, is, um, you know, lead, leadership, leadership by beating the stick is, you know, very much can only work 
for the short term. You know, yeah. sooner or later, it's it's not going to result. And so there's an underlying mismatch there. Mm. Um, his question of you know what uh, purpose does this job interview or this job description what will it fulfill in you mm. would be a really interesting question. You know, it would be. I mean, but he did say you know these people should be able to answer that immediately. I don't. I don't know that you could. Well, I, I don't know if some personally people personally. I'd have to sit on it. Yeah, I don't know if some people think in those terms. You yeah. know, I mean, I mean, they, everyone clearly needs a purpose and has a purpose, but I don't think they necessarily use that language. No, you know, and they may not have it defined. Especially some technical people, you yeah. know, that don't 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 speak in this metaphorical language, and and they, you, you'd probably have to workshop workshop it a little bit with them to to unpack yeah. the language or make them familiar with the language. Mm. Um, but a lot of people's values too come through their actions rather than their words. So you know, until you sort of see them work, or you could ask them about their lifestyle or how they approach certain tasks, and that would give you more insight potentially. And where what I find interesting in interviews, job interviews, um, I usually try to find a point of discussion where they light up. Yep. You know, so th- there'll be something like like sometimes you know we'll be talking uh, in an interview and and you know they've they've casually mentioned in their resume I don't know they're into archery or something. Yeah. You know, and you throw it out about oh I see you do archery, and you'll you literally physically see them light up. Yep. You know, and immediately you can you can see that that's uh, mm. you know that's their passion, and um, you know we can't we can't always you know necessarily make our hobbies um, our, you know our livelihood. Some people can, some of us can't. But um, you know, but sometimes your hobbies are important to stay hobbies because once you take them to a professional level. They're not fun anymore. Yeah. The, yeah. The fun, it can be seen two ways. I mean, I think some yeah. people have enjoyed making their hobbies a livelihood and some have enjoyed keeping it, yeah, you know, it goes both not ways. work. Both ways. You know, yeah. Not work. But I, I, I do like that question and I'm actually curious to try it, particularly mm. in a tech interview where, as I mentioned, not necess- people, you know, tech people don't necessarily – some do, but, you know, a lot of the time they, they, they're not necessarily, for, you know, familiar with that type of metaphorical way of, um, you know, seeing the world. Um, so it would be interesting. Peter Thiel, actually, who we mentioned in the interview – um, sorry, at the beginning of this podcast uh, and with Moon Express, he's mentions that he's got an interesting interview question, which I have used before. And uh, it's quite an interesting one. It said, what commonly held belief do you disagree with and uh, mm. convince me um, why I should change my view around it? It's an interesting one. That's an interesting one because you, you get to see how people handle a difficult discussion uh, a sensitive topic, um, how they can, you know, have to convince you of something, which mm-hmm. in, you know, especially in the tech industry, you know, developers have to convince you they need an extra server or to approach things another way or something can't be done or it needs to be done. And there's actually a lot of, you know, they, they have to convince the exec or the C-suite of a lot of things. So it's quite an important yeah. skill. I mean, it would test the person's ability to logically explain something as well particularly in like a tech field where it could be quite difficult to convey that language to someone who wasn't familiar with certain terminology. Exactly. And, um, 
you know, to tech people, I mean, if, if you're a developer listening to this podcast, I mean, the one thing that I would say is the, the develop the ability to explain the complicated tasks to non-technical people is a huge, huge advantage. advantage. <laughs> you know, it's really, it, it, it will help your career significantly. Mm. I think you know? it's common even in um, like in the medical field and stuff too. Like you have to ask your doctor, please, in plain English, you know, um, repeat what you just said. <laughs> just yeah, drop the jargon, yep. zoom out, you know. And um, I know for technical people it is a lot of brain power. A few of them have said to me, you know, it's when they have to translate it that, you know, they have to really think hard, it, yeah. you know. Um, and you can think about it, you can understand. Imagine having to explain, explain the internet to someone from another planet that that isn't aware of it. It's, you oh, know. Very it's, difficult. You know, it, it's hard if they're not familiar with the building blocks and then how deep do you go, you know, and mm. it's a two-week exercise to explain that. So <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do and, um, you know, there's a lot of components to the, the technical process. But, um, yeah, those are some, some interview questions and um, – it's. I think, you know, it's 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 tricky because we don't live in a perfect world, and I don't think everyone can be doing a job that fits in with their absolute. We can all aim to it, and we can all aim to have team members that are, and we can all aim to have jobs that are. But you know, sometimes, sometimes I think there's a bit of the reverse. Sometimes I think we need to find purpose and meaning in what we're doing. Right. Yeah, and and that sort of that pursuit of finding that meaning, you know I mean? Your meaning can constantly change, you know what I mean? So for, you know, this year you might have a, a particular purpose, but, you know, once you start heading towards it, you realise that might not be what you want and you've got to change tack. And things change as well, you know, things change as well. I'm at the sort of stage of life where a lot of my friends are, are questioning their paths and changing their paths. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're lucky we live in a society where we've got these, these high-level problems where we can uh, change things. I always – I'm very envious of my – I lose track of the generation labels. Millennials, what, what are people in their early, mid-20s? Are those millennials? Those are millennials, yes. right? Yeah. And then I believe Mostly there's – teenagers, I think. <laughs> are they? Millennials, yeah. Millennials. And then there's Gen Zs apparently, right? Yeah. Which are after millennials. Anyway, my friends yeah. in their sort of – early to mid 20s i'm lucky enough to have friends of of all different ages <laughs> um my my oldest friend is is good old jimmy he's 77 so yeah. <laughs> um we all love jimmy and uh he works uh, with team managed flutter and um but my younger friends the 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 ability they have to travel you know, for instance, mm. it's just it's just uh, it's such a such a privilege. My friend, it's so accessible now. My friend Maddie, she listens to this podcast often, and um, she's 22 and has been to 22 countries. Wow! Now that is amazing. In my, in my yeah. day, there was just no way in hell that anyone would have been able to afford that unless you know. But That's these, good. you know, and she's worked and she studied in places and she's spent some extended periods of time. And you know, I think that's also great about Australia being a very middle class. Um, um, sort of uh, economy that yeah. it's accessible. You know, it's not that top and bottom heavy as the the US or yeah, South plenty Africa. Plenty of opportunities now. Plenty of opportunities to volunteer to work visas, even visas. I mean, you can get there's all sorts of visas for Australians under thirty, right? Oh In yeah. Japan, yeah. Israel, I think even the states. I'm not sure. Canada, yeah. you can get all these work visas. What a fantastic opportunity! Mm. I know the Australian ones. 
maybe not for every country, but um, we've definitely uh, got like nice extended periods. You know, I have a friend who's here from the UK and, uh, and they got a year, right, a year where they can work, but they have to get two jobs in that time. And then if they want to extend it, they have to do some kind of agricultural work. Whereas in the reverse for Australians, you can go two years with no no limitations, no restrictions. You know what would be co- really great is if countries put uh, together national service, right? So mm-hmm. And they coordinated. So when you finish school, um, provide some incentive to do a national service in some other country. So you can go to, you can, you know, so French people can come here and we can go there and it's a coordinated national service working on the environment or, you know, mm. not-for-profits or, you know, I think also the gap year where it's just one big party, um, yeah. it's a bit of a lost opportunity as well, I think. I think these things need to be accessible and sort of in major cities as well. Uh, I think like the the whole idea of the helping out with agriculture here in Australia, I mean, the concept is good, but a lot of people don't opt for it because you know, they're going to have to move out of the main cities and then there's nothing nothing there for them to enjoy as young people. I've, I haven't, uh, the, the backpackers I've chatted to that have done fruit picking and so Australia's got a special visa for it. It's desperately needed people to pick fruit and it's got a <laughs> special visa if you come and pick fruit. I've never met anyone that's enjoyed the process. No. It's, they're stuck in the middle of nowhere with very few people, in harsh, harsh <laughs> conditions and picking fruit. And it's, uh, But they all manage to sort of, you know, yeah. sort of merge into some other track and land up in the big cities somehow, you know. Sure. So anyway, we have meandered wonderfully. Um, <laughs> I've uh, hoped you enjoy this podcast. Um, if you want to get an email notification when these podcasts are released um, just hop onto itsamonkey.com and pop in your email address as mentioned i've got some fantastic guests coming up um, over the next few weeks in a couple of weeks we'll be talking to david hanemeyer hansen um, he's the creator of ruby on rails and is a very interesting and very smart guy and quite outspoken and controversial sometimes which is great which is what we like and um, we'll be chatting to um uh, Neil Patel about content marketing as well mm-hmm. and um, we've, uh, we'll have we actually be talking to a podcast expert on the podcast which is a bit meta podcast as they say. Podcast inception. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we've got some, some fantastic guests lined up and we're always on the hunt for new guests. So um, we uh, um, got a great year planned. Anyway, you've been listening to the It's a Monkey podcast. Um, I'm Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO of Manage Flutter. And uh, with me has been Kate Rappel, who's the design lead of Manage Flutter. And we will chat to you next week. See ya. See ya.